Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners, and welcome to a new initiative of the Liturgy Guys podcast. As you heard in Season 4, Episode 1 of the Liturgy Guys, we have formed a new partnership and a collaboration with not only Benedictine College, but also the Adoramus Bulletin. Chris is the executive director and editor of the Adoramus Bulletin, and if you go to adoramus.org, you will find a lot of articles about a lot of different liturgical topics. It's such a great resource, especially for those of you who really enjoy the podcast, but maybe want to dive a little bit deeper. So what we're going to do is I'm going to interview different people who have written articles for Adoramus and sit down and we're going to talk about what they wrote and they'll be able to expand a little on what they wrote. And I'm going to do this about once or twice a month and we'll just publish these on this same podcast channel. So it'll just be extra content for you guys. I'm going to put the article link in the show notes so you'll be able to go there and read the article first or listen to the podcast first. Whatever you want to do, it's fine with me. So we're going to do this, like I said, once or twice a month. And this week I sat down with Father Thomas Bema And he is a faculty member at the Liturgical Institute, and he wrote an article in the most recent bulletin called Cultural Compass Points and the True North of Faith. So without further ado, an Adoramus interview. Well, I was very intrigued by reading this article because it's a lot of stuff that I don't know personally. But I want to start with this uh, quote that I pulled from the article that you wrote. Each ritual tradition, including the Latin Rite of the West, has a story to tell rather than a theological treatise to expound. I think this is very important because a lot of times, as you noted in the introduction to your article, we want to focus on what's different and how things, how we do things versus how somebody else does things. But I, I think this idea of having a key story to tell helps with that unification process. Can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. Um, I'm going to quote uh, uh, the title of a book that I read a number of years ago, which uh, really strongly affected me. Uh, it was um, uh, basically a, an autobiography of a Ukrainian Catholic priest who had served in the underground church during the time of the Soviet Union. He titled his book, Every Person is First of All a History. Hmm. And what he was uh, trying to convey with that is that um, there's um, there's no person that kind of just floats around independent of the the context that they live in, of the history of their people and their nation. Um, And he, he was trying to say, the only way you can understand me is to understand what it was like to be a member of an outlawed religious group under Soviet persecution. Um, now, the stories he tells, you know, they're, they're fascinating because they give you an inside view into what was going on in the former Soviet Union, you know, at that time. And there's a lot of drama mm-hmm. and all of that. But uh, I was, I, I, I've always been captured by that phrase, every person is first of all a history, because it reminds us that even though, you know, as an American, uh, someone, you know, deeply imbued with the Western tradition and, uh, and very, very proud of being, uh, you know, a Westerner Mm -hmm. in that sense. Right. uh, I, I realize that we, we tend to miss the communitarian dimension that is so 
prominent in other cultures. We're a real individualistic culture, and we sometimes tend to forget that that's only one way of being in the world. And then in other ways, uh, your whole identity is connected with who you belong to. Right. And, and in America, it's different because we're very good at having lots of different subcultures because we're so diverse here in America. But yeah. as the right you know, that we practice, that is what you're talking about, is that very one unified right. Yeah, and even in our own national story, uh, we, we hold up this ideal of the frontier family. Right. You know, yeah. the, the nuclear family, that went off in the stagecoach mm -hmm. out into the wilderness and they made it, you know, kind of all on their own. Um, that is a story mm -hmm. and it's a great story, you know, and it, it, it has penetrated all of us who grow up in English speaking North America, it's penetrated our identity, but there are other identities. Right. And they, um, uh, they reveal to us a depth that we don't see right on the surface. So uh, that, that's one of the things that uh, really uh, caused me to talk about the Eastern Christians mm -hmm. uh, with this starting point. For one, uh, I, I learned about it from a person who is an Eastern Christian and right. lived through all of that. But it's also been kind of an interpretive lens that I can use to better understand a culture and a context that's very different from my own. Right. And you are by ritual, right? I am. Uh, but uh, to, to clarify, one only belongs to one church, okay? So I'm a priest of the Archdiocese of Chicago, which means I'm in, inscribed in the Latin church. Mm -hmm. uh, I happen to, you know, know uh, enough about the ritual and uh, uh, tradition of uh, the Byzantine rite to have been given a special faculty to serve in that church. But I'm not a Byzantine priest, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm a Latin priest who serves over there. And um, uh, uh, one of my, my friends in the Ukrainian uh, diocese once said, you know, Father Tom knows more about the Eastern Church than probably, you know, anybody I know. But he's so thoroughly Latin, right? You know, because right. we can't ever step out of that. You know, we can't step out of it. Absolutely. Uh, so yes, I'm I'm a Latin priest who who serves periodically uh, in one of the Eastern churches because they have a need for priests. Excellent. I, I want to jump to this um, this section that you you titled Christian Vessels," and you talk about that the church emerged in the world fully formed in AD thirty in AD 33 on Pentecost, and you talk about how that means that although the church was composed in that moment completely of Jews, it was also already universal. Right, right. We, what, what makes the Catholic Church what it is, is the fact that it's simultaneously both universal and particular. Mm -hmm. So even as, as we look at the, that story in the Acts of the Apostles of, of the birthday of the church, uh, when the Holy Spirit uh, came down upon the apostles and disciples and basically you know, empowered them with all the gifts that they would need to fulfill the evangelizing mission, which is to make disciples of all the nations. Um, even though in that moment all the disciples were Jews, there was still a universality because they were Jews from all over 
the place, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and that's a great reading to, you know, uh, to, to trip up new uh, lectors, you know, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, oh, right. yes. you know, Mesopotamia, <laughs> Cretans and Arabs, you know. I think I have fallen uh, to that as it's, personally. Uh, it's a wonderful thing. But the it, it, it's also a wonderful text to remind us that um, the we're an incarnate religion, okay? Uh, Jesus didn't become a generic human being. Mm-hmm. He became a first century Jew living right. in Roman Palestine. Okay, that's where the incarnation took place. Um, and uh, so too, all of the original disciples and the Blessed Mother were all Jewish. But the new covenant is to extend the promises made to uh, the Jewish people to all the nations. Mm-hmm. The word uh, the nations in the Bible means everybody beyond the Jews. Right. You know, you have, uh, you have the people of Israel and the nations. And so what it really is, is an expansion. Mm-hmm. The close relationship that God developed with uh, the Jewish people throughout their history is now extended beyond them. Right. to all the all the nations. But wasn't there liturgical diversity and cultural diversity within the Israelites themselves, depending on which tribe you are a part of or different Well, factions? not so much by, by tribe. What, what, one of the things that's happening at that moment, mm-hmm. you know, when the Holy Spirit is, is birthing the, the church there, one of the things that's happening is um, uh, the, uh, a kind of struggle between uh, the... The temple priesthood and the synagogues, mm-hmm. because when Israel was went into exile in Babylon, they were cut off from the temple. Now, if you don't have a temple, you can't do biblical Jewish right. worship. So, what developed in the long years of exile is uh, a, another form of Jewish worship. Okay, uh, and in, indeed, if the Book of Psalms. Uh, really uh, captures much of that. You know, my sacrifice is a contrite heart, you know, mm-hmm. um, and all of that. And it's interesting that Jesus um, quotes more from the book of Psalms than any other text of the Old Testament scripture. Mm, I didn't know that. Uh, I, I, I didn't know that for a long time. <laughs> and when I discovered it, I said, oh, wow, okay, that, that, that says something. Um, if you do ancient um, uh, uh, historical studies, you, you would find that Jesus um, would probably most have been confused with a Pharisee. Because sure. the Pharisees were this synagogue movement as opposed to the temple priesthood um, that way. So he would have most been confused with them, which is why he has to so often in the New Testament distinguish himself right. from yeah. the Pharisees uh, to show that he's right. you know, doing something uh, that's new. So uh, those were the two big things. Now, in AD 80, when the Jewish war takes place and the Romans destroy Jerusalem and with it the temple, biblical Judaism, as we understand, as a worship system located in the temple, comes to an end. Hmm. No temple, no worship. You know, you can't do it. Oh, yeah, right. So rabbinic Judaism and Christianity in that moment... 80, just, you know, a, a few years, a few decades from uh, the ascension of the Lord, uh, they, those two groups 
become the successors mm -hmm. to, uh, to biblical Judaism. And so the relationship between the church and the synagogue was very good in some places, it was antagonistic in others, but our worship forms really derive out of that development. Right, I can clearly see that, and yeah. especially going back to the temple and uh, Yom Kippur and the high priest entering the temple and all of that. Yeah. And, and, and so this brings about two impactful things. So one, you had the hyper-local enculturation of this new covenant, new church yeah. amongst you know, Jewish people, but then also supposed to incorporate everybody. But then you have this movement of, it, it doesn't stay there in Jerusalem, it goes, the apostles start bringing this out to the world. So right. can you speak a little bit about how this one true message sure. is being in interpreted differently depending on where the okay. apostles are that's, going. Okay, that's very good. So we start with Matthew 28, the Great Commission. So mm -hmm. Jesus goes to Bethany, you know, and the apostles meet him there. And uh, uh, they writes right before the ascension. And he says, full authority has been given to me in both heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. That's mm -hmm. Gentiles, okay. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded. And lo, I am with you to the end of the age. Um, I can talk for an hour about that sure. last clause, but uh, we'll, let's skip over that right now. It basically means, you know, that this is not Jesus has left the planet uh, like Elvis has left the theater. Right. Uh, this is my mode of presence among you is going to change. It's going to change from the physical, you know, presence that you know that I have here in my glorified body to the Eucharistic presence, which will mm -hmm. be with you to the end of time. So Jesus is still present and active in his church, although sacramentally now. So uh, with that then, the apostles have this kind of clear sense, okay, we're supposed to tell everyone about this, and right. so we're gonna go out. Now, the way the apostles go out, though, um, is congruent with the fact that they are going to nations. Mm-hmm. You know, go and make disciples of the nations. All different nations. Not individuals, you know, right. first, first of all. But you're, you're trying to bring this message to nations. So what happens is uh, things get bad in Jerusalem, so it's time to leave. Right. Um, you know, trouble with the Romans and all that. So a bunch of the apostles, Peter in particular, but also Bartholomew and uh, others, they go north to Antioch. Why Antioch? Well, that's the next big cultural center. Actually, it's a much bigger deal than Jerusalem was in those days. Okay. But Antioch is, is in Semitic Syria. It's a Semitic culture. Uh, they, they speak a language very uh, uh, close to uh, Judean Aramaic. Uh, so they're, they're Aramaic speaking. And they're culturally very, very close to the Jews um, that way. And there are Jewish communities mm -hmm. up there. So Peter's first base of operations is in the city of Antioch. Mm -hmm. And as I met the Melkite patriarch uh, years and years ago, and he had this little quip, he said, you know, if Peter had died in Antioch, I'd be the Pope. <laughs> and he'd be right, you know. Wow. Because yeah. the only thing about Rome that is significant is that's where Peter died, you know. Wow. Peter's city. So I we were almost the Antiochian Catholic Church, but <laughs> sure. but uh, 
but anyway, from, from there, the, uh, a strong, strong Semitic Christianity developed in Antioch. And then, if you, if you know the geography, um, uh, you, go, you go back to the journey of Abraham, from Ur of the Chaldeans down by the Persian Gulf, mm -hmm. up the Medi uh, Mesopotamian Valley, stayed in Haran, up at the top by Armenia for a while. Then he crossed, turns left, crosses over to the coastline and comes down through Antioch and what is today Antioch and then down into uh, what uh, currently uh, is Israel. Well, what the apostles were doing, uh, the ones who went to the Semitic cultures, is they were retracing Abraham's steps backwards. Oh, okay. From Jerusalem, north to Antioch, turn right head up to the headwaters of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, which is the superhighway of the Middle East. Was this to like bring the new covenant to all of those who had the old covenant? Right, because there, there were ah. lots of communities of Jews there who never came back from the exile. Hmm. They were waiting for the Messiah. And so what well, comes... That makes a lot of sense because they, they're like, okay, well, now these people need to know. So what comes back as they retrace Abraham's steps, what happens is a whole vibrant set of Jewish Christian communities convert to the faith in northern Mesopotamia. Uh, and this can be traced almost directly today to the Assyrian Church of the East, uh, who continue, you know, they are those same people and they continue... Uh, forward. So how you tell the story of Jesus to a group of Jews who are anticipating and waiting for the coming of uh, the, the Jewish Messiah is going to have its own character, its own flavor, and its own development. So one of the things that happens in, um, the, in Semitic Christianity is um, it's an almost aniconic tradition. They don't use images. Mm -hmm. Well, Jews didn't use images. Right. And it, you know, it wasn't a rejection of anything. It's not iconoclasm. It's just it grew up in their culture. The two images that they used historically were the Holy Cross and an icon of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Okay. But th that was all you would find in their churches. Huh. Okay. Now that's different from what St. Paul is up to. So Paul also goes up to Antioch, but then he turns left uh, and heads up into Asia Minor, which is pagan territory. Now, the way you bring the gospel to pagans is different. Right. Okay, this is making a lot of sense now yeah. where, where that split is. Right. Okay. Uh, it's different. And so Paul is, he's telling the story in the way that it needs to be told so that people can receive it. But there it's going to take on different contours and flavors. And that really is the story uh, of, uh, of how the different traditions, uh, ritual traditions within Christianity develop, because each time they go to a new people, they have to tell the gospel mm -hmm. in the way that it can be received. Now, um, our own tradition, the Latin tradition, uh, most people think originates in Rome, but for the tradition that isn't perfectly true. It actually begins in North Africa, which was a Roman colony. Okay. Um, and so the uh, and, and it was a place um, uh, 
one, uh, Avery Dulles, uh, Cardinal Avery Dulles, uh, has talked a number of times in his books about how one way Christianity spread um, was through the Roman army because the moral virtues that mm -hmm. Christians lived were very appealing to soldiers. They saw it as a heroic sure, kind of yeah. life. And so actually in the province of Africa, which is, it's like where uh, Tunisia is today okay. and, and Tunisia and Libya um, uh, today, if you look at a map, it's a, a hop, skip and a jump from the toe of Sicily to the island of Malta, mm -hmm. to the peninsula of Tunisia. You know, it's, it's not hard to go by small sure, boat. Yeah. That was a trade route. Okay. Then they go up the coast of Italy to Rome. But um, uh, so there was lots of uh, movement back and forth between Rome and Roman North Africa. But um, in Rome, you had a high culture, uh, which meant everybody was speaking Greek. So there, the liturgy was pretty much what they received, you know, coming out of the East. Mass was in Greek for a long, long time. But out in North Africa, they didn't speak Greek. Mm -hmm. And so that was where the Latin language for the first time found uh, its way into our liturgy. So they translated the, the liturgical text into Latin. And also there is where Latin theological literature began to develop with people like Cyprian and Tertullian and right. uh, Augusta. Because then I would imagine yeah. that even though you would have this main, I guess, break into two different, um, I guess, challenges. One, to uh, evangelize to those who needed to hear that the Messiah indeed had come, yeah. and to the Gentiles, those who were, didn't even subscribe. He didn't know that, that there was a Messiah. Exactly. Yeah. So those are two different core missions. They and, really are. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. The core mission is the same to you well, know yeah, to right. proclaim Jesus' world, but the way you do it's going to be different. But you you have to. It's like when you're raising kids. You know, you you tell them about life in the way that they can absorb at whatever age they are, mm -hmm. or things well, like that. I would I would give this message to my children in a different way than maybe I would give a, a parent that had fallen away or exactly. something. You know, it's exactly. a different it's different style. And how you talk to someone who has fallen away from the religion is a completely Correct. different thing because there's hurt there that has to be healed first. Mm -hmm. so, at any rate, how we get the different traditions is as as the nations begin to receive Christianity, it takes on part of their character. So, I mean, just the fact that you're speaking in Latin rather than in Greek, mm -hmm. or in Greek rather than Aramaic, mm -hmm. uh, already an enculturation has occurred. Because anyone who speaks another language knows that they don't translate perfectly. Right. Uh, if, you, if you don't believe me, throw something into Google Translate <laughs> or one of the I've other seen, translators. I've seen that, yeah. And the machine cannot do it. It right. can do a big part of it, but to go from the genius of meaning in one to the genius of meaning in another, right. that's not a mechanical it almost take, Especially thing. with scripture, it would take inspiration to be yeah. able to get it right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that, that's why it's always important to remember that unlike some other world religions, Christianity does not have a sacred language. Mm -hmm. It only has original languages. Mm. Okay? So the, the, and just like Judaism, 
you can translate the scriptures into another language and it will still be the word of God. Uh, that, right. Now, there are other religions that don't believe that, that only the, the oh, original text yes. okay. is actually the word of God. Everything else is someone's opinion. Are there any Christian rites that believe that? No. Christianity, okay, so. like Judaism, understands that the word of God can be translated okay, and still stay the word of God. And that's really one of the key... We get that from Judaism. Um, uh, because most of the Old Testament that the Christians used was in Greek, mm-hmm. translated in Alexandria, you know, many years before before Christ. Uh, but that's how that's how most people received the scriptures. Right. Uh, and uh, so uh, we take that Jewish notion that you can actually translate the scriptures. So I mean that shows that language, which is kind of the first pillar of culture, mm-hmm. you know, language, religion, and society are the kind of tripod that any culture right. rests on. Um, uh, that shows that the, the single truth can be expressed in multiple ways and still be the truth. Right. Uh, and I, that's the thing. Right, again, right back at the at the Acts of the Apostles. The one and the many, mm-hmm. you know. The, uh, we, we are one assembly uh, in the Lord around the apostles. And yet at the same time, we are Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, and keep mm-hmm. going. I love the implications that this, this has on how to properly evangelize people, even today. Yeah. Because, you know, it takes lots of different styles. No, I don't think one way is the universal way to evangelize every type of person. And so oh. I like that this can be a template overlaid. I mean, because it's what the early Christians were doing. It's what the apostles were doing. They had to figure out how to get the message across in a way that it was going to be properly received. Yeah. And so I think that's really the key to evangelization now. And I like that, that style. And it, it's also more than practical because uh, these are theological traditions, which means they've reflected on the mystery of God. Mm-hmm. And because of their unique approaches, each one has managed to penetrate the mystery in a different way. So um, we can be mutually enriched by understanding the kind of key insights mm-hmm. of the different no, that makes ritual traditions. Uh, and um, uh, they're not in competition with each other. Uh, there's no hierarchy right. of them, um, but we we want them to continue to grow and develop because we're just all enriched because of that. Mm-hmm. And I want that kind of sums up everything. Up this last uh, little thought that you have at the very end of the article, I just thought was really great. You say the various ritual traditions of the Christian East are not then mere rubrical variants; rather, they are expressions of how the faith, sacramental life and ordained ministry have taken root in a specific cultural framework, and at the same time, how variety in theology, liturgy, canon law, and spirituality is particularized in one true faith in a given place or culture. I I just love that little bow that just ties everything together, because it's it's everything that we've just discussed right now, but then also it allows us to understand this past and this history that we have, but it also gives us the proper hermeneutic to go forward. Yeah. One of, uh, uh, another quote that I, I like a lot that 
in, informs that is something uh, Bishop Robert Barron always used to say when he taught uh, Doctrine of God at mm -hmm. uh, his, his course at Mundlein Seminary. Um, he, he was a, a great follower of um, uh, Monsignor Robert Sokolovsky, the great philosopher okay. at Catholic University of America, one of the truly great Catholic minds in the United States. And Monsignor Sokolowski, um, always um, uh, you know, good philosopher that he was, he wanted to get terms straight and accurate at the beginning. And in talking about the difference between God and humankind, between the creator and the creature, uh, Sokolovsky, later quoted by Barron, um, was very clear to say, God's relationship with human beings is non-competitive. Mm -hmm. okay, so it's not that he's just bigger and stronger and all of that. He's different. Consequently, in that relationship, there's no, well, who's bigger, who's more powerful, right. and all that. It's not a struggle. It's a relationship that is utterly non-competitive. That's why the scriptures can say God is love. Mm -hmm. Because if you... You know, if you think of the human analogies of love, you know, such as in a relationship of marriage and that, love is most perfect when it's completely non-competitive. No, that makes a lot of sense. So I think the same notion applies when we're trying to understand, okay, I'm a Latin uh, Catholic, um, you know, and uh, how... How do I relate to these other things in the Byzantine mm -hmm. church and all of that? And we have this instinct to try to prioritize things, say, well, this is better than that. Or no. compartmentalize them right. and say, you're over there and I'm over here. Yeah, you're over there, I'm over right. here. But ultimately, we're going to get down to, oh, no, no, this way is better. <laughs> okay, that's the competitive streak. Well, what happens? What happens if in our spirituality we accept you know, what, what Barron is articulating here, if God is non-competitive, and if the relationship between cre uh, creator and creature is non-competitive, and if, if love is best defined as, you know, pure non-competition between persons that, you know, simply allows both to flourish and all of that, then what does that say to us about how we can be enriched by a, a very, very different Christian ritual tradition mm -hmm. uh, that, that isn't ours, but isn't in any competition with us. Right. What happens to our liturgical spirituality if we accept that idea of non-competition? It's a different perspective. It's, it's not one that I'm used to hearing or seeing. And I would, I would argue that there's even you know, we're, we look at tension sometimes between the Novus Ordo and the Extraordinary form, mm -hmm. and those two are even closer together than some of these other rites that we're talking about. So that puts it even more perspective of that mutual enrichment. It's not just mutual enrichment because, you know, Benedict said these two forms of the Latin rite are mutual. It's mutual enrichment across the board. Yeah, yeah. like it or not, as Latins, uh, we are heirs to the great cultural tradition of Roman law, mm -hmm. which means we tend to first think about what the rules are right, right. and all of that. That isn't the way my Byzantine friends think, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, it, it's, it's very different. But uh, generally, when you hear a conversation about the Novus Ordo or the Vetus Ordo, um, the, ancient, the ancient order, um, uh, it's all about, well, which is right? 
You know, which rubric can I use mm -hmm. on that? No, 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 please. <laughs> if you really understood what Pope John Paul II was trying to do when he first gave the indult, uh, and which I believe, you know, Benedict was trying to continue. Correct. Yes, yeah. So, I mean, this is not just, didn't just drop out of the sky with Benedict. Uh, he was really continuing something that John Paul had done. Um, it, it was a pastoral question. You know, are there, you know, certain people, spirituality will be best served by having access to the old right. Correct, yeah. Okay. And so, you know, one of the provisions of canon law is that the salvation of souls is the highest law. So if we could view all these things non-competitively, uh, I think it would free us to, to honor the beauty that exists in both. I very much agree. Um, very much and agree. Uh, that's what I think John Paul was trying to do when he uh, first, first gave the indult. And uh, I, I, I think it applies, you know, first of all, between the Latin Rite and any of the other uh, autonomous ritual churches of the Catholic Communion, that we shouldn't see ourselves competitively. But even within the Latin Church, exactly, uh, where there are three usages, the right. ordinary, the extraordinary, and the Anglican usage for those communities that came mm -hmm. over, uh, again, not to view them competitively. Um, and uh, each one has its own integrity, and I'm a very big one. No right mixing, mm -hmm. you know. Okay, let each one live in its own integrity, mm -hmm. but to view them non-competitively, that that's the real key. Because then we're in the world of spirituality, right. and not the world of law. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time. This has been really helpful, and I'm glad to, you know, expand on some of the stuff that you wrote about on this article. So thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome.